Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic and this is Father John Arnold. You know during Easter we've been talking about miracles and miracles are uh, this intervention, the finger of God into material reality. Miracles don't contravene material reality. They are the way that material reality is actually set up. I mean, just think about it. The idea that anything exists at all is a miracle. It's a sign of God's loving work. Uh, and so if you think of miracles as about God, a uh, way of loving the world, then you see them also as doorways out of the world. You know, Christ is a miracle. Christ is the Son of the Father, the Holy Spirit shared as the love between Father and Son. We'll talk about that more in the Feast of the Trinity in two weeks. But Jesus talks about himself as a miracle, as a doorway out of this world. If you remember that in Easter, about the fourth week of Easter, the stories take a change, a, a change of direction. The first three Sundays of Easter are all accounts of the resurrection. But the fourth Sunday of Easter, remember, is the Good Shepherd. And you're asking, why are they going to, I think it's chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, where Jesus said he is the Good Shepherd. What does that have to do with the resurrection? But you remember this line, it was in the reading on the fourth Sunday of, of, uh, of Easter, and it's from John chapter 10, verse 9. And here's what Jesus says. I am the gate. Whoever, whoever enters through me will be saved, will come in and go out and find pasture. You know, he refers to that in several ways in the Gospel of John. He's the door. He's a gate. Uh, the one that you pass through. He talks about, remember, when they asked, Lord, how many will be saved? And he says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate is Christ. So, Christ, or as T.R. Deschardins, the famous Jesuit, he was a paleontologist and a theologian, somewhat controversial, controversial in his time, but recently has come into much more prominence because he was one of the very first of uh, the uh, crop of, say, theologians in the last hundred years that tried to enter into this fruitful conversation between um, theology and science. And so he wrote a book called The Divine Milieu, and these are some of the quotes from that book. He said, At the heart of our universe, each soul exists for God in our Lord. But all reality, even material, material reality, around each one of us exists for our souls. Hence, all sensible reality around each one of us exists through our souls, for God in our Lord. As for humanity assimilates the material world, I should say, as our humanity assimilates the material world, and as the host assimilates our humanity. So we eat, and the material world becomes part of our body-soul um, uh, form. Uh, he says, and so the host... Assimilar, assimilates our humanity as if God is taking us up into his divinity. And then he continues, the Eucharistic transformation goes beyond and completes the transubstantiation of the bread on the altar. It's a door. The Eucharist is a door. 
Step by step, it irresistibly invades the universe. It is the fire that sweeps over the heath, the stroke that vibrates through the bronze, in a secondary and generalized sense, but in a true sense. The sacramental species are formed by the totality of the world, and the duration of the creation is the time needed for its consecration. So his point is, is that the consecration isn't just an act at the altar, but as the Christian comes forward to receive the Eucharist, and the Christian is taking material reality into himself, all of creation is being lifted up to God through the action of the Eucharist. So when you look at the Eucharist and you say, I don't see Jesus' face in that, what you're seeing is the work of God in transforming reality into the Son of God. Uh, and so you just have to see the Eucharist stretching back to Christ, but also the work of Christ drawing you into himself through the Eucharist. This is how you see God. Uh, you're not going to see a guy with a beard and um, really nice eyes that looks like Jonathan Rumi from The Chosen. That is uh, reducing Christ to his humanity. To see Christ in his totality is to see the redemptive work of the Christ. So here's how um, T.R. Deschardin sums this part up. In Christos vivimus, movemur et sumus. You know what that means. In Christ we live and move and have our being. Our work appears to us in the main in a way of earning our daily bread, Sheridan continues, but its essential virtue is on a higher level. Through it we complete in ourselves the subject of the divine union. Christ's work is being completed in us. Hence, whatever our role as men may be, whether we are artists, working men, or scholars, we can, if we are Christians, speed towards the object of our work as though towards an opening a door on into the supreme fulfillment of our beings. We ought to accustom ourselves to this basic truth till we are steeped in it, till it becomes as familiar to us as the perception of shape or the, or the reading of the words of God, not, in a far, not far away from us, but altogether part of the world we see, touch, hear, smell, and taste around us. He awaits us every instance in our action, in the work of the moment. He's at the tip of my pen, my spade, my brush, my needle. Christ is sanctifying the world through us and through the Eucharist. So uh, think about that, that the work of God through Jesus Christ continuing on through the sacraments and how important it is that you don't, as some Christians do, uh, reduce Christianity to just a book because that's what the Jewish people have done in the Torah. They see that as God's presence amongst them. And the reality is it's true. It is God's presence amongst them. But it's not the totality of God and God's work in the world. It's the Eucharist that's the essential point so that you understand what's happening in the Eucharist by what you've read in Scripture. And so... Christ's divine nature is an art because it's divinity. But Christ's human nature is art. And as <clears throat> Christ goes forward in this world, uh, in his humanity and divinity through the Eucharist, he's making a work of art out of our lives. So John chapter 10, verse 9, of uh, the good shepherd, I am the gate, he enter through me and in the pasture. 
he is explaining the Eucharist, how the Eucharist works in our lives. All the doors that you can explore, and there's lots of them, um, as you think of children are doors out of this world because every time a child is born and baptized, they become part of eternity. They point towards something. Um, children like transubstantiation, Peter Kreef said in his, in his book, uh, Doors Out of This World, they're a divine miracle, something eternal that enters time. He says existence is a door. For He says no assemblage of essences or natures accounts for it. He refers to a great philosopher of the 20th century, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who said, it's not how the world is, but that it is. That is mystical. Um, the why of the world, a question that science just isn't equipped to answer. But it, it, science is like a finger pointing at the moon. It can direct us to what is mysterious about our existence. And science really does do that. But you'd be a fool to mistake the finger for the moon. Um, that's what that's what uh, Peter Kreef says about it. So I don't know if you remember, but in Genesis chapter eight, um, verse twelve, there's a story about Jacob, the patriarch, having a dream. He lays his head on a rock. He has his dream of angels ascending and descending. Um, where it is, he sleeps. That there is this commerce back and forth between. Uh, the earth and God in his heaven. Uh, and this is the people Israel, why the Jews, Jewish people are necessary for salvation, a uh, part of God's plan. But Jesus refers to that very phrase again in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 51, because it's very much a part of his thinking about how it is that we ought to understand his work in the world. And so do you remember that... Uh, that Nathaniel is asleep under a, a fig tree, I think it is, um, when one of Jesus' disciples says, come, we found the Messiah. And then Jesus says, oh, here's a man with no guile. Um, and then Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel responds to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him in John chapter 1, verse 51, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. And he said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, you'll see the sky open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This commerce between heaven and earth, this is what the ascension is. This is what we celebrate. This miracle of Christ assumed into heaven. You know, our unique um humanity is a doorway into the eternal. We don't think of ourselves like that, um, but that our, our personhood, who God has made us to be especially and uniquely in our baptism, this is a door out of the world. And in all of those doors, we meet the same Christ, the logos, the rationality, the purpose and meaning of God, the creator, because all doors are the door, that is Christ Jesus in disguise. And so in the ascension, he's pointing towards something essential about human life. So let's take a moment, let's turn to the scriptures and talk about the feast of the ascension and how it is that Christ ascends into heaven and angels descend to uh, speak to the disciples.
And so in the gospel readings and the readings from Acts of the Apostles, we have two complementary accounts of the ascension. And the very first one is the first reading for this Sunday. And it's from Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 11. I'm just going to read the end of it. And so uh, Jesus calls his disciples to the place where he'll ascend, where he'll be taken up in glory. Uh, and here's what, this, what the Acts of the Apostles says. When they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you, going, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking about Israel as an earthly kingdom. And he answered them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. While they were looking intently at the sky as he was going, Suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. They said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will return in the same way as you've seen him going into heaven. And so Christ goes into heaven, angels descend. It's from Genesis what Jesus says about himself in the Gospel of John through the account of the same reality of this entry, this entrance, this commerce, this exchange uh, between heaven and the earth. But one of the things I want to point out about Acts of the Apostles is, did you get when it said, when he said this as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them from their sight. So what a stratonimbalist cloud descended and Jesus surfed his way up out of the atmosphere past uh, Mars. That uh, is not what the reference is to. The reference is to the glory cloud. And if you remember, the glory cloud comes down on the mountain when Moses receives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19. The glory cloud comes down on the first temple when Solomon consecrates it in the, uh, in the first book of Kings, uh, that the glory cloud is the presence of God. And it's obscures, you can't see, um, but it is God's presence. And so the Acts of the Apostles... Uh, ends uh, with the restoration of the glory cloud under the true temple because you remember in the prophet Ezekiel the glory cloud abandons the temple because of the sins of the people but now the true temple of Christ the glory cloud is descended upon him and taken him as a sacrifice an acceptable sacrifice on behalf of humanity in in the gospel of Matthew for the Feast of the Ascension. It says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, and this is where the Ascension occurred, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. Uh, and when they saw him, they worshiped, but they doubted. Well, it's really the same story that's accounted for in Acts of the Apostles. Do you remember what I just read where it said, Lord, are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel now? Because they weren't sure to make of it all. Um, Jesus had spent 40 days basically uh, teaching these men about his divinity, to think about God differently than the people of Israel had thought about God. This is the transformative of fat, uh, event in the history of the church, but it is the descent of the Holy Spirit after Jesus, uh, 10 days after Jesus' ascension, that uh, lights the, the apostles on fire. That's the story that the Acts of the Apostles tells. 
So it then said that Jesus approached and said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So Jesus ascends, but he never leaves. Go back to what T.R. Dan was saying about the work of the Eucharist. And who carries forward the work of the Eucharist? Well, it's the church. Um, it's a mass that we attend. But let's, let's pick this part a, a little bit apart about uh, what the scriptures are telling us about the miracle of the ascension. And I would just also point out the obvious, the miracle of the Eucharist. So it says, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so Jesus, um, all cre creation is subject to him. Uh, he says, there's light, there's light. He says, this is my body, this is my body. It starts with an understanding that he is the divinity through which all things were created. And so he gives the mission to the church, to you and me. Go, that we're supposed to not keep this to ourselves. You know, go back to our day jobs. This is supposed to transform us. And how does it transform us? Well, it's the work of the Eucharist. Remember what Chardin had said. Uh, as we take up food in the material sense, we eat a cheeseburger and it becomes part of John Arnold. So the Eucharist, when we consume the Eucharist, we're taking up into the higher nature of the divine. And so part of the work of the Eucharist is discipling, bringing others to the Eucharistic table so that they can know and understand what God is doing in their life. So to make disciples of all nations. It's reconciling fallen away Catholics, letting them understand what the church's real teaching is on divorce and remarriage. There is a big reason people fall away. The relationship of faith and science. Uh, how about simple morality? Try reading the, the uh, catechism so that we don't have misunderstandings about what sin is. Um, the gospels, the work of the church is fundamentally about the miraculous. It's about Christmas and the passion, death and resurrection of the Lord. It's about the ascension and, uh, the, and Pentecost. Those were all miraculous events. You can't reduce the church to just an ethical code. There is uh, an ethical life that we all have to live simply to be open to the work of God in uh, our lives. We can't love the satanic and God and expect that this is gonna be a transformative life. We have to cooperate with God's grace in the world. The biggest way we cooperate is through a moral life of faith, hope, and love, lived out especially in prayer and charity, and then an ethical life that tries to live the, uh, the virtues. Uh, but at the very end of Acts of the Apostles, just like uh, in the gospel, the importance of baptism. It's why at the Easter vigil, as this season started, uh, all the readings were about baptism in one way or another, at least the, uh, uh, the Old Testament readings and the first readings uh, is about baptism because it's the door, it's the way um, that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, Acts of the Apostles and, um, and uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, is very much about uh, these doors that the sacraments are. Um, I'd like to close this section 
with a reading from St. Leo the Great, who lived at the end of the last part of the, of the fifth century. He was pope from 440 to 461 AD. He was the guy who convinced Attila the Hun not to sack Rome. Um, and, but he wrote uh, about the Lord's ascension. And this, I thought, it was in the uh, priest's breviary uh, for, uh, for office of readings, uh, matins in the morning. Um, and here's what he wrote. Even the blessed apostles, though they had been strengthened by so many miracles and instructed by so much teaching, took fright at the cruel suffering of the Lord's passion and could not accept his resurrection without hesitation. Yet they made such progress through his ascension that they now found joy in what had terrified them before. They were able to fix their minds on Christ's divinity as he sat at the right hand of his Father, since what was presented to their bodily eyes no longer hindered them from turning all their attention to the realization that he had not left his Father when he came down to earth, nor had he abandoned his disciples when he ascended into heaven. Because to look at Jesus' humanity maybe obscures from us the very nature of his divinity. And why is this important? Uh, as Leo the Great points out, he says, so that faith does not fail, hope is not shaken, charity does not grow cold. So in the final section of this Oral Valley Catholic, I'd like to talk about the miraculous. Why it is that the miraculous draws our attention to God but fundamentally, the miraculous isn't the conversion. It's when you understand that everything is a doorway to God, not just something that happens to us that's awe-inspiring. But in fact, our very lives, the fact that we exist, this is what brings us to wonderment, and wonderment to contemplation, and contemplation, the experience of God. So let's turn there now. So the Eucharist is a miracle. It's a sign of God's saving activity in the world. It's not, you can't explain it through natural means. Science has um, nothing to add to it. Baptism is a miracle. Confirmation is a miracle. Uh, a sacramental marriage and holy orders, miracles. The sacrament of reconciliation and last rites or anointing of the sick, miracles. These are all sacraments and sacraments all participate uh, in the miraculous, God's activity in the world. If you would take the time to recognize that the difference between our Catholic faith and, and so many other uh, approaches um, to religion is uh, that we are centered on the basis of the miraculous. If you remove the miraculous from the gospel, uh, what would you have left? Because Jesus performs miracles, signs of his divinity, at every step along the way. You cannot take Christianity and reduce it to merely the ethical, as important as the ethical is. But that's what Stoics do. You can be an atheist to be ethical. You can refuse God in any meaning or purpose in human life, like the Epicureans in the, in the Greco-Roman world. And um, you, know, you have your ethical life. Uh, and if you remove the miraculous from uh, Christianity, what you have left is an ethical code. Why do people walk away from Christianity, from Catholicism in particular? Is because the miraculous is lost on them. Um, 
Our Lady of Fatima didn't appear at Fatima because the dead don't appear. Our Lady of Lourdes uh, didn't appear at Lourdes because the dead are dead. Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, is just this historical joke because she's dead. She's not appearing anywhere. Forget Faustina talking to Divine Mercy uh, or Margaret Mary Alacoque and the Sacred Heart. Um, just go through all the miracles that are woven into the warp of Christianity, the very fabric of our Catholic faith. Um, and so to think about miracles as directing our attention to God's presence, uh, the miracles are like a finger pointing at the moon. I've used that example before. Don't confuse the miracle with God. The miracle points at God. Um, you have to first believe that God's in the world and God's drawing to himself. Then what's your problem with the miraculous? What I'd say is, if you accept the resurrection, what the heck problem do you have with the miraculous and the ascension? In for a nickel, in for a dime, friends. But if you, re if you refuse all these other things, is it the resurrection that you really have trouble with? I mean, I can understand some of the craziness of say online preachers and the dubious nature of some of these miracles that encourage you to make donations to their uh, to their ministry, um, charlatans existed even in Acts of the Apostles. Read the part about Simon Magus that starts in uh, chapter eight of the Acts of the Apostles, who wanted to purchase the apostles' secrets about how they performed miracles because Simon Magus was a magician. Magus magician. And uh, he just saw it as magic. But magic is our control uh, over material things in the world that the magician believes, and the victim of ma magic believes, achieve a divine effect. It's a love potion. No, reality is not constructed that way. Sacraments are the use of material things to achieve a divine effect according to the will of God. It's the exact opposite of magic. It's why participation in the occult and astronomy gets reality upside down. And in some important way is a rejection of uh, Christ and the gospel. Um, Peter Kreeft wrote a really terrific book, and I've recommended it before, Doors Out of the World. And it's really a discussion of miracles that uh, picks up from C.S. Lewis's discussion and talking about them as doors out of the world. He says, um, Christianity is its miracles, and here's what he wrote. Um, Pascal says in his Pensees that miracles are more important than you think. They were used to found the church and will be used to continue it until Antichrist, until the end. Of course, he's referring to Blaise Pascal, the famous 17th century uh, math whiz and the author of the Pensees. So he continues, on the other hand, he is also aware of the limitation of arguing from miracles. The clinching argument for the importance of miracles is that God thought they were important enough to use them to found and perpetuate his church. In fact, all the essential and distinctive elements of Christianity are miracles. Creation, revelation, first to the Jews, the giving of the law, prophecies, the incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming and last judgment. Subtract miracles from Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism, or Taoism, 
And you have essentially the same religion left. Uh, miracles are just not essential to them. They're all really basically codes. Subtract miracles from Christianity and you have nothing but the cliches and platitudes most American Christians get weekly. And he says, and weekly spelled W-E-A-K-L-Y. He can be very acerbic. Uh, from their pulpits. Never at St. Mark, my friends. Nothing distinctive, no reason to be Christian rather than something else. Um, because one ethical code is pretty much like the next. But his point is about miracles that they're really not the basis for conversion. They're something that gets attention. That's why I'm talking about Our Lady of Fatima or a healing. Um, the people that are open to the um, transparency of material reality, that there is a door out of this world, the I believe in something more approach to life. Um, here's what Kreef says. The Pensees on the limitation of miracles ba balances the importance of miracles. Miracles convert only the mind by force of evidence. Even then, the hardened heart, determined not to believe, can overrule the mind as it did with the Pharisees. Or I'd say in the Gospels, when it said the disciples um, doubted, uh, worshiped, but they doubted. The miracles forced them to think, wow, something's going on. But there was a disconnect between their experience of Christ's miracles um, and a, a real conversion to a gospel life. Uh, conversion isn't caused by seeing miracles. Miracles do not address our major problem and of sin, yet miracles are useful. They're powerful clues for seekers. They're attention grabbers. They're like the famous argument of the wager by Pascal, that if you don't expect too much of them, they're very effective. Um, the wager doesn't convert the heart to saving faith, but it's a powerful beginning, and that is you're better off believing in Christ than not because um, it'll go better for you in the afterlife if you believe in Christ than uh, if you reject them. And if uh, there is no afterlife, uh, everybody's in the same situation anyway. Uh, <laughs> Pascal was very much a very calculating personality. But it is understanding of miracles, not just simply as something an attention grabber, but something that points out that creation, our lives, the lives of children, the lives of the people you meet point to something greater than ourselves. They point to God. And so Jesus' ascension, his exodus out of this world, like Moses leading the people from the desert in the ascension, he leads, leads us to heaven. He leaves us, but doesn't leave us alone. This is the ascension. Though he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, though saving work of Christ continues in the sacraments uh, and most significantly in the Eucharist. So receive Eucharist weekly. Um, adore Christ in the Eucharist. Um, offer your heart and heart. Uh, take on sin in your life. Convert. Become a saint. And so until next week, this has been Father John Arnold and another edition of Oral Valley Catholic.